Anybody still voting, by the way? Are you done? Done voting? Hope so. Hey, listen, we're beginning a new series today called Parables. Uh, we're going to do three weeks, and we'll take a break for a special Thanksgiving uh, message and then some Christmas stuff. And we'll be back to finish off uh, the parable series uh, in 2021. Uh, we're looking at these short, pithy, uh, kind of incredibly powerful stories that Jesus used to explain his kingdom and how that kingdom was radically different from the kingdoms of this world. Uh, we're not going to look at all the parables. There's probably, depending on how you count them, uh, somewhere between 30 and 70 of them. Uh, some of the parables are pretty famous. Like uh, even people who've never been to church know some of them because they've made their way into uh, popular literature, like the uh, parable of the lost sheep or the prodigal son. That said, parables are very commonly misunderstood and often misapplied. We, we don't always understand what the purpose of a particular parable was that Jesus was trying to get across. We just kind of read it and kind of whatever jumps out at us, we think, oh, that, that must be what it means. So before we actually dig into this uh, parable that Michelle just read for us, I uh, want to take just a few minutes to kind of give us a little primer on helping us understand parables, what their purpose was, what Jesus was trying to accomplish through them, uh, why he launched into them to begin with, and, and how we ought to read and interpret them. So if you're taking notes, there's kind of four little points um, that uh, you can jot these down if you want to. Come back to, to them when you come across a parable in your reading. Uh, kind of remind yourself of how to kind of approach them. Number one, parables illustrate a central truth about the kingdom of God. So in each and every one of these, what Jesus is doing is making kind of a central primary point. There's usually not five, six, or seven things he's trying to get across. There's one, one main point. And in many of them, it's kind of obvious. Um, and there are some times where he explains the parable, so the point he's making becomes obvious, even if, if it wasn't obvious at the beginning. Uh, once he finishes explaining it, it's pretty clear. So the first thing really is to zoom in and try to figure out what the central truth about the kingdom is. And the second thing is this, parables are not allegories. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're an English teacher, you know what these are. If you're not an English teacher, you try to forget what these are. But in an allegory, you're trying to figure out what the hidden meaning is behind everything, behind each character and each event. And if you treat the parables like allegories, what's gonna happen is you're, we're likely to read things into the parable that Jesus never intended. So kind of a hint for us as we get into these parables is uh, in every parable, uh, see if you can find the God figure and find the you figure. So usually somebody is portraying the God figure and somebody's portraying the us figure, you and me. So here, here's an example. <clears throat> uh, one of the first ones that Jesus uh, spits out is a parable about the sower casting seeds. You know, he throws seeds on four different kinds of ground, right? One type of ground is really hard. The seed just kind of bounces off of it and the birds just fly down and eat it. Uh, another type of soil is pretty shallow. It's got a little bit of dirt, but uh, the seed germinates quickly, but there's no room for the, for the roots. So as soon as the heat comes, it withers away the little sproutling and it dies. Third ground of seed is the seed grows really quickly. Good seed apparently, but it's also it's amassed with weeds. So before it actually germinates into, into a crop of any kind, it, it, it dies. It's choked out by the weeds. 
And then finally, the fourth ground is it, it, it's great soil. There's no weeds. It bears incredible fruit, 30, 60, or 90 fold. So part of that parable is obvious. You know, God's the sower. You and I are a type of soil. And the central theme deals with the ways maybe that the word of God, the message of Christ, the gospel is going to be received. But when it becomes an allegory, <laughs> I've actually seen this in some commentaries. People start doing weird things like math. Okay, four types of soil. Uh, each type of soil must, must represent 25% of the population. So this means that 25% are going to receive the gospel and become fruitful and be saved and 75% won't. And, and uh, Jesus has got to be saying, guys, guys, this was not about a math lesson. It's not about engineering. I'm just saying there's four different types of responses uh, and not everybody is going to get it and accept me as Lord and Savior, and then end up being fruitful. So, you know, we don't have to overreach. Find the central point, find the God and you character, and then make an application from that. Third thing is this. Parables don't stand alone. And when I say that parables don't stand alone, here's what I mean. You never want to take just one teaching of Jesus and look at it alone as if all the truth of Jesus is contained in that one little teaching. A parable is simply one part of the entirety of scripture. And sometimes Christians consider, you know, the words that Jesus spoke, if you've got a Bible that has the red letters, you know, the Jesus words, uh, sometimes, think, sometimes people think that those are more important than all the rest of scripture. Here's the problem with that. Uh, we're told that all scripture is God's word and all of it is inspired. In fact, the book of John tells us that Jesus is in fact God's word. So if it's in scripture, it comes from Jesus, so it's all important. So any parable that Jesus speaks does contain a central truth, but the rest of scripture can often fill in, if you will, nuances or provide additional insight and application. So you, you take it all together. The rest of scripture can enhance or illuminate or explain many of the things that Jesus talked about in these parables. So, uh, for example, uh, some people read what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Remember that guy comes up, he says, hey, what do I need to do to get saved, you know, go, to get into heaven? And Jesus says, well, keep all the law. The guy says, well, I did all that. Jesus says, really? <laughs> really? You've kept it all. Okay, take everything you have and sell it and follow me. And the guy walks away sad because he had great wealth. So people presume from that little discourse that Jesus must be against anybody having wealth. Well, that's not all the case. Um, he's just against having wealth be the end all and be all and expressing how dangerous wealth can be because it could be what you put your faith in. I mean, Jesus was highlighting that point to the rich young ruler who thought he was sinless and right with God. Look, look, you, you could not have a whole lot of money and still have a problem with money, right? I mean, if your whole life is built around getting more of it, and you think that by doing that, you're going to get, it's going to save you. That's going to be your salvation to see that you're, 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 you're misusing the whole approach to money. So Jesus didn't see his command to the rich young ruler as a command for everybody and say, well, Dwayne, how do you, how do you know that? How come it's not for everybody? Simple. You got the rest of scripture. You might remember because we taught from this passage here at the surge, um, but God inspired the apostle Paul to write a book of first Timothy to Timothy, who was a pastor of a church. And Paul gives Timothy, the pastor, kind of instructions um, on how to talk to the rich people in his church. 
So the question is, does Paul tell Timothy to tell the rich people that God hates them for being rich and what they should do is just sell everything and give the money away? Not even close. Paul encourages Timothy to tell those with wealth several things. One, don't be arrogant. You know, God allowed you the privilege of being able to have the funds and give you the smarts to be able to, to amass it, okay? Don't trust in it. Don't put your faith in it because you're not going to take it with you. And make sure that you are generous with it. See, there are nuances there. So you always have to ask, what does the rest of Scripture say to inform the main point of any passage, including the points Jesus makes in the parables? And we're going to try to do a little bit of that today, just kind of as an example for you on how to, how to read these things. So number one, parables accentuate a central truth. Two, they're not allegories. So look to find the God figure and the you figure in it. And then three, parables don't stand all by themselves. Use all the rest of scripture. Finally, the fourth point. Jesus had a very specific purpose and a very specific reason for using parables. And to help us see that, I just want to re rewind the video a little bit and look at Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. That Jesus kicks off his ministry starting in Matthew chapter 3. And the first part of Matthew is Jesus being born and all that kind of stuff, right? So he, when he starts his ministry, he gets baptized. He gets tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He begins to identify some disciples. And he starts teaching and healing and casting out demons and all kinds of stuff. And this stuff causes huge crowds to start following him. And that gets the attention of the religious leaders, of course. So he, he then does the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then for the next five chapters, he just engages in all kinds of more ministry stuff. Uh, and this is, here's what's interesting. There isn't one parable in the mix. Suddenly, everything changes in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus alters his teaching style radically, and that's where parables start showing up. So the question is, why is that? Well, he's been teaching straight up truth, but opposition to that truth is starting to grow. See, Jesus hasn't really left people a middle ground. He's either God, he's either, he's either the Messiah, he's God that's come in the flesh, he's the one that he's, you guys have been waiting for, who's going to offer salvation to the world, or he's a lunatic or some kind of a liar. There's, a, there's really no middle ground that Jesus leaves people. And in the first 12 chapters, almost every single page, Jesus has pushed this point that he is the Messiah, the Son of God they've been waiting for. He's pulled out passages from the Old Testament. He's referred to himself by the titles the Old Testament called the, referred to the Messiah. He's made it clear he is not just a good guy. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good prophet. He's not just a smart guy. He's not just a good person. He's, he's God or nothing. And opposition has started to gather, especially from the Jewish religious leadership. Uh, their position is, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nobody can call themselves God. That's blasphemy and it's punishable by death. And if you want to see some of the reaction, you can read Matthew chapter 12, and you can begin to see what Jesus' reaction to some of this opposition, what he says about these people. Uh, uh, a den of vipers might be a good example for what you would find in that chapter as Jesus is confronted by and responds to uh, this opposition. Now, in the face of this opposition, this is when Jesus abruptly changes his teaching style. He starts doing these things called stories called parables. They're kind of earthly stories 
with a spiritual meaning or teaching or a moral. The word parable in Greek literally means to come alongside. That's what it means in Greek, to come alongside. So these are stories that come alongside the truth that Jesus has already been teaching. Stories that highlight and enlighten the truth he's already been throwing out there. And if you and I were in the crowd, we would notice the change, but we wouldn't necessarily notice why the change happened. We wouldn't know, we wouldn't know why it got prompted. So the stories are kind of cool and some of them have really weird or interesting twists uh, or almost ludicrous endings. So they, they capture people's attention. But why exactly does he launch into them? We're not really sure, but good news for us, it turns out the disciples weren't sure either. So you and I have the blessing because in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples come and they ask Jesus, hey, do, hey, what is up? Why have you switched gears all of a sudden? These parables can be really hard to figure out. And Jesus throws out a lot of parables, about a third of his teaching from here on in are these little stories. So they come and ask, and Jesus tells them essentially, there are two kinds of people in the world, people like you guys who are interested in the kingdom and who have believed what I've said. So I'm giving you everything you need to know straight up. But there are also people who've proven they really don't want the kingdom. They're not really interested. They've rejected me and my teaching. So they're not gonna get anything more from me straight up. So I began speaking in kind of a new way. that's gonna reveal kingdom things to those who really want it and yet conceal the truth from those who really don't want it and have rejected it. And Matthew actually records this conversation for us. So let me just look, let me just look at it and you can see it uh, unfold in real time here. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them and said, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and now what Jesus does is he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, which if you read it, is a prophecy about how when the Messiah shows up, he will use this very technique of conveying spiritual truth, revealing truth to those who are hungry for it and concealing, concealing it from those who are just kind of playing around and uh, rejecting it. So here's the Isaiah passage that Jesus quotes. You will hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their ears and, uh, and with their eyes they have closed lest they should see me and with their ears hear and with their uh, eyes see and with their ears hear and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. That's, that's the Isaiah passage. And then Jesus adds this just for the disciples who are not the people who are uninterested. He turns to them and says, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long, he's talking about people in the Old Testament, they longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So with all this kind of background for you, let's get into our parable for today, which begins really just a few verses later in verse 24. It's called the parable of the weeds and the wheat. 
I want to read it again, just to get us familiar, uh, have it right on the tip of our tongues, because you're going to see that what Jesus does is he, he tells this parable, but he also offers like a machine gun burst of a couple of other parables on the crowd here right away. So here, here's what it says. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now, what you need to know is that Israel back then and now is stricken by something called Darnell. It's a weed. And it looks exactly like wheat until just before harvest time. Truth is, we had this weed on my grandpa's farm. I helped work when I was a kid in Indiana. And the weed and the wheat would grow up together. And only as it got near harvest time, would you be able to tell the difference? Because one stands up straight and the other begins to droop from the heaviness of the grain, right? So only at this point is it obvious to the servants that somebody has sabotaged the wheat field. So the master answers. <clears throat> An enemy has done this. So the servant said, do you want us to go up and gather them? He goes, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. You don't, you don't, want, to destroy, you don't want to destroy the wheat. Let them both grow up together until the harvest. And it's the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then, boom, nonstop, Jesus goes right into another parable. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants. In fact, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And then, boom, nonstop, a third parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things, it says, Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then there's this quote from Psalm 78. And Psalm 78, if you read it, is about God's reaction to the people of Israel who forgot all that God did for them in rescuing them from Egypt and taking care of them in the wilderness and putting them into the land. They kept rebelling against him. He says this. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now, here's what I found interesting. Jesus blasts out three parables, back to back, boom, boom, boom. But the disciples only ask about the first parable, the one about the weeds in the wheat field. Why? Well, apparently, Jesus's point on the other two was pretty obvious to them. Second parable, kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, starts really small. You might miss it, but it's going to grow to be massive and ultimately overshadow everything. Okay, disciples are probably thinking, okay, we th you think we got that one? Okay. And the third parable says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast that you know, some, a woman hides in the flower, in the, in the, in the, in the flower, but then it just, it, just, it just infiltrates everything. You might not see it at first, but it's going to transform everything it touches. Maybe the disciples are going, okay, okay, we think we, we, think we got that one too. Okay, good. But the weeds in the, in the wheat field, man, totally baffled them. 
So they asked, so Jesus explains it, starting in verse 37. This is what he said. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus' name for himself, as you see it all the way through the, the book of, of Matthew. Um, the field is the world. Don't miss it. It's not just the church, although it includes the church because the church is in the world, right? So son of man is the sower of the seed. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, people who are part of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, who aren't thrown into that fire, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. Okay, so we're blessed to know the meaning of the parable since the disciples asked them. In this world, there are those who follow Christ. And in this world, there are those who follow the enemy of Jesus. Those who cause evil, do evil, under the authority of the devil. And Jesus says, it isn't our job to separate them all out in the here and now and deal with them. We're, we're to leave that to him. He's going to take care of all that at the end of the age when he mops up all his enemies in the grand finale. Read, read the book of Revelation. Boom, it's over. Pretty stir, but it's a pretty clear central truth once he explained it, right? It's not our job. That's why we could have titled this message, Some Jobs Are God's, Some Are Not Ours, right? But here's what I want to do in the rest of our time. I want to take the central truth of this parable and ponder what it means for us today. How does this apply today uh, as we live in a world in which there are people who follow Christ and those who don't? How am I to respond to the non-Christians around me? All the way from the, those who are kind of apathetic to those who are maybe very antagonistic to the things of God. What do I do? How does this parable with its central message of leave the rendering of judgment to God apply to us in the real world where we work, you know, where we have to live in our neighborhoods, even in the political arena where we live. So buckle up, here we go. Here's how we see how we can use the rest of scripture to enhance this thing uh, called a parable. One, number one point, we don't avoid them. We don't avoid the lost world. If you're a Christ follower, we're not supposed to avoid those who are not Christ followers. See, we know from other scriptures that we are called by Jesus to be what? Salt and light. And the whole description of that was that salt does no good just sitting in a salt shaker all by itself. Light doesn't have any impact if it's hidden under a bushel basket. We're to be out there making a difference. Our calling is to infiltrate, not to isolate from. We're to be that, that yeast, right? That leaven that, that it's, it's planted in the, in, in the flour, but then, but then it filtrates the whole, the whole loaf, right? That spreads throughout to be the tiny seed that grows up to be something massive. Our job is to make a difference. And we can't make a difference if we're living in the land of avoidance. Now, sadly, that, that has often been the mindset of God's people, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. We tended to look around and see evil and stuff and we, people with godless agendas and out of fear, we tend to isolate and withdraw. Uh, 
people did this in Jesus' days. It was called the Pharisees. They did just that. They just did everything they could do to keep away from anything that was going to be uh, influencing them. They were no influence on anybody else, though. And we can do the same thing today, right? We got Christian yellow pages, Christian schools. We got people who wouldn't hire a plumber to fix their leak unless he's got a fish on his truck. We got Christian radio stations, Christian media. If we're not careful, we can box ourselves into these little Christian caves to make sure that nothing's going to influence us. Problem with that is this. If you do that, you're not going to touch anybody else. You're not going to be influencing anybody else. You're not going to be infiltrating. You're not going to be useful in the kingdom. Some of us have kids and grandkids, and you were, we're thinking all the time, how do we, how do we protect them? And the problem is if we, if we overreach, we're going to lose God's protection because we're not being salt and light to those who don't know Christ. Now, I want you to see this really clearly in Scripture. So if you got your Bibles, you can get to 1 Corinthians 5, or just write the passage down so you can look it up later. I want to explain what happens in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth, and there was a pretty nasty sin going on there in the church. The guy in the church was engaged in a sexual relationship with his, yeah, stepmother, his dad's wife. And Paul has been trying to coach uh, this church in how to deal with stuff. And it's clear in the first Corinthians letter that this is the first letter that this church and Paul have exchanged. So you'll see that from the very first sentence we'll read here in a second. Anyway, what this church was doing was it was so, so, so proud of itself for not interfering or dealing with this. And they were thinking, man, isn't being a Christian great? You can just sin all over the place as a Christian and everything's been forgiven by, by the blood of Christ. God's grace covers it. It's no, it's no problem. And Paul says, oh, you guys are total goobers. This is terrible sin. It's wrong. In fact, it's so bad that the lost people around you, the pagan cultures around you, are grossed out by this. Even they don't do this stuff. It's sin and it's wrong. Uh, so you're being a horrible witnesses for Christ. You need to deal with this. But how to deal with such a sin popping up in a church is something for another message. But, but I, I want, to, want you to see something. As Paul is getting into this topic, he notes that there's a distinction in how Christians are to deal with evil stuff around us. And the distinction is this, whether the person doing the evil stuff is a non-Christian or a Christian. Remember, in this particular message, we're dealing specifically now with how do we deal with non-Christians? How do we deal with the lost world around us? How does the wheat deal with the weeds? Since it's God's, God's job, ultimately, to deal with the weeds. So, with this in mind, just listen to Paul's instructions to this church. He goes, I wrote to you in my letter. So he's referring to an earlier letter, an earlier correspondence that they've had going back and forth. And so we're stepping into a conversation that's kind of already underway. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So that's what he told them. But then he catch, but then catch this. He, he's also now making a correction to a misapplication of what he said. I didn't mean at all. I did not mean at all the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In other words, I'm not talking about how you deal with non-Christians. I'm talking about how you deal with people in the church who are doing gross stuff like this. Because if you are not going to deal with lost people or with sexually immoral people who are lost, you'd have to, go, you'd have to leave the world altogether. So, so see what Paul's saying? You guys need to deal with sin straight up. 
that's going on in the church among people who claim to be Christians. But you're not going to have to deal with the sin stuff going on in the same way in our relationships with people out in the world, the non-Christians. Instead of not associating with them, we are to associate with them. We are to have relationships with people who don't know Jesus. You and I are not to avoid the world. We are to infiltrate the world. Now, that does not mean that we are to cooperate with or endorse or participate in the sin stuff the world of non-Christians is up to. But we are to not run away from, from, from people doing them, not run away from sinners, right? We are to be salt and light with the hope that we might share Christ with them and encourage them to become Christ followers. Now, look, most of us don't have any problem at all with our non-Christian friends who are okay with us being Christians. Uh, a lot of us have a lot of non-Christian friends. It's okay, we, we like them, they like us. And some of them might actually live better lives than some of the Christians that we know. But here's what we need to catch. This idea of mingling with non-Christians also includes evildoers. This includes people who maybe are antagonistic, make fun of you, right? When, you are, uh, when, you, when they find out you're a Christian, they might mock your Christianity when it comes up. Uh, maybe they're people who not only do things that you know are wrong, but they work to get everybody else engaged in that sin too. I mean, when Jesus explained this parable to the disciples, he described the weeds as those who cause other people to sin and those who do sin themselves. And he said, look, even those, it's not your job to take it upon yourself to uproot them. So we don't avoid. We look to connect. We look to befriend. We look to love with the anticipation, with the hope that they will somehow see something in us of the God living through us that makes them interested in the Jesus that we have which leads to the second point, I think, on the lost world. Don't attack them. Don't spend your days attacking them. Not only are we not to avoid or shun non-Christians, even the worst of them, we're not to attack them. We're not to judge them or condemn them or call them all kinds of names. Now, Jesus' words and the rest of scripture are, is incredibly clear that it's not our job to attack or condemn or judge the lost world. Now, please, please hear me carefully. Our culture today has weird ideas. Like one of them is, well, you can believe anything you want to believe. All paths lead to the same place. Let me tell you, that's just stupid. Nowhere in real life does this work. Another weird thing we have now is how tolerance has been redefined. Because biblical tolerance means that you, you have the freedom to be wrong. In our kind of upside down culture, it means, oh, everybody has to acknowledge everybody else as doing the right thing for them. That, that's also stupid. God, God never puts us or never asks us to put our brains in neutral. When he calls something a sin, we, we call it a sin. When something is wrong, it's, it's wrong. We, we can make judgments about what sin is, okay? When I say we're not supposed to attack, here's what I mean. You and I don't have to go around rendering judgments and condemnation of people who are not Christians. You, you catch the difference? We can make judgments on sin, like, okay, um, you know, I should I shouldn't do that. That that would be wrong for me. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go there. That that would influence me negatively. I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna participate in that. I'm not gonna involve myself in that because that would keep me from living out the law of Christ, loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and other people like Jesus has loved me. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose not to engage in that activity or that 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 that, that stuff. That's different than me sitting around 
and judging everybody else who's not a Christian for doing that stuff. And when we focus on us and the decisions we make for our lives, it's just fine. Then we turn that around and start condemning and judging everybody else, especially non-Christians for what they're doing, right? So I don't think it's smart to go pick at them and tell them they're going to hell, right? That, that's judging and condemning. I mean, if you look at it from their perspective, that's what you're doing. And God says in this parable, that's kind of their, that's kind of God's job, not ours. Now, listen, here's the truth. If they're not Christians, what chance do they have of, of wanting to change or changing? I mean, they're, we are told that they are un, under the influence of the devil. And I'm going to tell you, the devil, we know this from scripture, does a fantastic job of conning people and seducing people and convincing them that the sin that they uh, think that, this is, is, that, that they want to do is going to feel really good. It's going to make them really happy. It's going to bring fulfillment. You and I know this. The consequences of sin can bring results so painful and destructive that guess what? In time, same people that are now joyously participating in stuff, they know that it's going to hurt them. They may actually come to a point because of the pain and destructive aspects that they might begin to think something like this. You know, gosh, you know, maybe I've been deceived. Maybe there's a better way to live. Maybe that Christian friend of mine down the street that has is my friend, has this right. Maybe I should go talk to that person. But I'm going to tell you this. That person isn't going to think that at all if all you've done is pour guilt and shame and judgment and condemnation on them for what they're doing. If you've not been the friend who has loved them and they know that you've loved them. See, our job is to be the people who point people to a God who loves them. And we got a hard time moving from hate speech about them to talk to them about a God who loves them so much. Maybe you've noticed that there are some people, even some churches, who kind of feel like it's their job description to be watchdogs for Christ. They're like the Jesus Rottweilers. They're out to protect poor baby Jesus, right? They haven't gotten the newsflash. Baby Jesus ain't baby Jesus anymore. He's King Jesus. He doesn't need Christian Rottweilers to protect him from all those bad people out there. What he needs are sons and daughters who will walk in obedience and do what he's called us to do and represent him well to a lost world around us. Identify, speak, show love to non-Christians, right? Be friends with them, socialize with them, invite them over, attack them. Nope. Live your life in such a way that they will eventually ask you, what the heck are you all about? Because they see something in you that they wish they had. And your judgment and condemnation is never going to be what they wish they had. If you love them, then you can tell them about Christ, who loved you when you were an enemy, and who changes everything. If you want to tell people about a God who loves them, be the people of God who demonstrates that love by loving them. Give them a taste of what it looks like for us. Jesus bestowed love on us we didn't deserve or earn. Do that for others. Now, here's just a quick passage, again, bringing in some of the scripture that kind of spells out how you and I are to respond to those who are doing the will of God's enemy, the very kind of people Jesus was talking about in this parable, who are the weeds. Again, another letter of Paul to Timothy, the pastor of this church. This is the second letter of Timothy, second Timothy in chapter two. Here's what he says. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to Oh, here's the word, everyone, everyone. Who's that include? 
everyone. Who's not included? No one, everyone. Kind everyone, people who are Christians, people who are not Christians, people who are adamantly opposed to Christianity, people who are nasty as all get out, right? Able to teach, able, it's a key word there, able to teach, able to teach. Doesn't mean you take your fist and jam it down the throat. Able to teach. Someone says, hey, can you explain, can you explain why you're doing this or why you're not doing this? Able to teach, kind, able to teach, patiently, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Someone comes up and says, hey, I'm doing this. Why aren't you doing this? Here's why. Correcting opponents with gentleness. Why? Here's why. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And, that may, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, kind to everybody, right? That includes what? Even the, worst of the, even the worst of the people. But when we get out there as Rottweilers for Christ, identifying evildoers and pointing them out, it backfires on us. First of all, here's the deal. Every person who's still alive and hasn't accepted Christ has a story that hasn't finished yet. My bet is this. A bunch of us could have been poster children for enemies of God before we became Christians, right? Aren't you glad that somebody didn't come in and uproot you and throw you away at that point? I, I think of the Apostle Paul. He's written a bunch of our New Testament. But if you read the book of Acts, he's standing there approving of the murder of an early Christian named Stephen. And he did that not because Stephen did anything wrong. It, it did it because of what Stephen believed and spoke. Paul became a great persecutor of Christians, hunted them down, dragged them out of their homes, put them in prisons where many were led from to their executions. He created an army, an army of orphans. I mean, that's pretty antagonistic to the things of God. Who would have placed a bet at that point? that Paul would become one of the greatest followers of Christ who ever lived. In fact, he was so bad that when he became a Christian, people didn't believe it and were terrified of even being near him. So we don't judge. We don't write people off. We love them because you never know how their stories are going to go downstream. So that's why God says, hold on there just a minute, partner. That's my job. If you just wait till the end, you'll see I'll take care of everything. But in the meantime, not your job to judge and condemn. Love others like I loved you, they may just be headed to becoming a follower of mine. So why don't you treat them like that might happen? You know, uh, my travels with the government, I spent a good deal of time in Europe, especially after 9-11, talking to other countries about counterterrorism stuff. I don't know how you do things when you travel, but for me, uh, hitting a new country or city, I like to try to get acclimated to get to know my surroundings a bit. And most cities have a city tour you can take. It's amazing how many stops on those tours are, are to these huge, gorgeous churches that no one goes to. I mean, they're beautiful, but completely dead and lifeless. And this occurred so many times that I thought to myself, gosh, I wonder why. Why these massive, impressive, elaborate edifices with no Christians in them? So if you know me, I ask these questions and then I ponder them. And, and I think I've become to understand why most of that con, it is so cold to Christianity. And one of the reasons is because for centuries, Christian leaders did not do what Jesus tells us to do in this parable. I mean, if you've got centuries of crusades and inquisitions, if you've got stories 
where the Protestants are killing the Catholics and the Catholics are killing the Protestants. And then among the Protestants, one guy gets, lets another guy get burned at the stake because of a difference of opinion about baptism. And another group gets all upset because someone's translating the Bible into English. So, hey, let's kill him too. But that, if that's your history, you can kind of understand why a lot of people just don't want anything to do with Christianity. Uh, because Christians don't seem to be all that fun-loving, don't seem to be all that joy-filled. In every case, intentions were good. People were just trying to help God out. But the results were horrific. By the way, I think we've done some of the same things. You ever feel like our culture is kind of headed over the precipice at warp speed, becoming more and more anti-Christian, trying to force us to get rid of our values? Can I remind you of something? Maybe you're not old enough to know this, but uh, there was a time in this country when Christians were in the majority. And you know what we tried to do? We tried to legislate morality, right? Tried to uproot those who saw things differently. Guess what? Now that we're in the minority, we're getting some of what got dished out to, by us. See, we take our cues too often from talk radio, magazines, and blogs instead of God's word. And sadly, we're experiencing today in our culture what I've been saying what happened years ago. Uh, when I said this years ago, people act like I had two heads. But I say, you know, I'm not a big fan of just boycotting this and protesting that and judging and condemning. Uh, and the reason is I thought we were setting ourselves up to get what we didn't want if we were ever in the minority. And Jesus says, you know what? How about leave that all to me? How about go out there and befriend and love my enemies? How about you live your life following me, doing what I did based on what I taught you and what I, how I treated you? Don't do what the world does, but don't waste your time condemning and judging people, right? What I want them to experience from you is my love for them just as it was for you. So that's the guidance on dealing generally with non-Christians that uses the rest of scripture to kind of flesh out the main point of this parable from Christ. Now, look, we haven't covered everything on this. For example, what if non-Christians show up at church? Are we supposed to make them feel welcome or unwelcome? Yep. Judged and condemned? What, what do you think yep. based on this parable? Or maybe love them because they might just be people that God's wanting to rescue from the devil's clutches. Yeah, I think the latter. Now, we also haven't covered fully the issue of what to do with something like what was going on in Corinth is happening in our church. Somebody who's claiming to be a Christian sleeping with a stepmom, okay? Good news for us. The Bible does have instructions for us. Because of time, though, we're going to save that for another message. So, again, haven't covered everything. But I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Talked about the four points to keep in mind to get the most from Jesus' parables. Find the one clear teaching. Don't try to find a hidden message in everything. Focus on the God figure and the you figure and then make your applications from that. Remember that the parables don't stand all by themselves. Use the rest of scripture to explain stuff. And that Jesus had a very specific reason for using parables to highlight truth for people who are interested in it, but to mask it from people who are just playing around and, and being opposed. All right, there's you go. That's what we got for today. Let me pray for us. We thank you for your word. Thank you for all of it. Thank you that we have instructions and guidance.